Well, we've been talking about it for some time, but we are starting Genesis today. If you want to turn to the first book of the Bible, it's exciting. It is. It's exciting yet intimidating. As I've read uh, the past few months on Genesis, the more I read, the more fearful I get of preaching on this book. There's 50 chapters in it. Uh, That's one thing, that it's quite large, but it covers quite a a time in history. It covers quite an expanse. So this morning, uh, I think it's helpful before we start getting into our usual pattern of preaching, where we preach verse by verse, it's helpful to do an overview. So we're preaching on Genesis 1 to 50, and we'll try and keep it under an hour. I don't know if people are going to get up and leave now, but... Hope not. Uh, it will be handy if you have a Bible there. I don't, it's too hard to really, I didn't write all the passages out. We're going to sort of go like real quickly through the main points of Genesis, looking at what is the overall meaning of the book. And uh, I need the Holy Spirit's help. Uh, you need the Holy Spirit's help. So let's pray. Father, we need this moment, this moment of composure, this moment to just ponder who you are and ponder who we are. Lord, to think of your your holiness, your uniqueness, Lord, to think of your, your power, and Lord, then to compare ourselves to you and and realize that we are created beings. There is no comparison. We are yours. We have rebelled against you. Our (coughs) hearts continue to wander from you. Yet, Lord, we know because of Christ we are bound to you. We cannot completely wander away anymore. And, Lord, we want to know our origin. We want to know where we began. We want to know how you formed this earth and why you formed it and how you purposed it. What was your end goal? What was your motivation? Lord, many big, complex questions to be asked and answered. Father, we need your spirit. Who can understand your mind, Paul writes, unless we have your spirit? So, Father, I pray, let man's wisdom perish because it is foolishness. And may your wisdom be present, present with us, among us, as it is through your word. Let your word speak forth its message. And Lord, with my finite words, would you help me explain it and learn myself as I learn with my brothers and sisters all about your good and gracious sovereign control and purpose of this world. We give you great praise, honour and glory are all yours, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Every story has a beginning. Every one of us has a beginning. Uh, Maybe you measure your beginning from the day you were born, or maybe you measure it from the time you remember. For many of us, maybe our earliest memory is school. I don't think I can quite remember much more before I went to school. 
But for the Christian, the beginning for us often starts in the New Testament. Often for us, we uh, evangelize. That means someone comes and brings us the good news of Jesus, and they start in the New Testament, which is a great place to start because Jesus is there and Jesus is our means for salvation. But that means when we come to faith and we repent and believe, we often spend a lot of time initially in the New Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, and then we forget that the New Testament actually has a prologue, a a part that went before it, and that part is actually far, far bigger than the New Testament. Most of your Bible is the Old Testament, 39 books. If you open to the end, Malachi there, you will see that it's quite a significant chunk of the Old Testament. Now, the reason we spend a lot of time in the New Testament is because that's where Jesus was and he sends out the Holy Spirit and it's, it's applicable, it's easy to apply at times. Sometimes it's quite complex, but it's a lot easier than the Old Testament. But what we need to remember is when we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the book of Acts, the apostles taking forth the Gospel to the world, they refer to the Scriptures not as the ones we would recall, but the Old Testament. When Jesus says, I'm going to open up the Scriptures, he goes to Isaiah or to the Psalms. When Paul goes to the synagogue and reasons out of the Scriptures, he's in the Old Testament. The Bible for Jesus and the apostles was the Old Testament. They were writing out or being given the New Testament in their time. So we need to be a church and Christians who are biblically literate. We need to know the Word of God. We need to understand the Word of God. And we can't neglect the Old Testament. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, which could be referred to the Old Testament. Definitely the first five books of the Bible were called the law. I've not come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. So when we look at the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Some ridiculous amount of prophecies Jesus has already fulfilled. Majority of the prophecies Jesus has already fulfilled. So when we want to understand Jesus, we want to understand more of who he is, we need to come back to the Old Testament and say, who was he? Because the danger is we often do this comparison where we go, well, I believe in the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. But it's very clear that God is unchanging. And the God of the Old Testament is still very present in the New Testament and present today. Yet something's changed. Christ has died on the cross. And raised from the dead. So when we look at scripture, we need to look at it as a whole, and we do not want to neglect the Old Testament. Otherwise, we will lose sight of how deep and rich the gospel story is. The gospel story being the good news of Jesus. But the gospel doesn't start in the New Testament. The gospel starts in Genesis 1:1. What we read here today, what we study over the next few months or year we will realize that we are engaging in the good news of Jesus even before his name is mentioned in Scripture. He is alluded to, he is foreshadowed by different people in history, and we're waiting, waiting with eager longing and eager expectation for the Savior to come and make way for us to know God and be with God like we were or like people were in the beginning. 
So we want to unpack Genesis to begin with to help us come to an understanding. I think if we, we understand Genesis, we can then come to a greater understanding of the whole of the Old Testament. So my hope after today is that you'll have a greater overview of Genesis. We're not going to really unpack verse by verse. Uh, we will do that over the next coming months. But we're just going to try and give you an overview so that this week you could go off, read Genesis throughout the week. Uh, if you want to read it in one sitting, it takes about three hours, a bit over three hours. Great practice to do when you start a book of the Bible. Uh, sometimes we can, we can read the Bible and study it in depth where we spend a month on one letter. Or like we do at church where we spend a year on one section. But there's a great benefit in reading large chunks of Scripture as well. So let's have those both as a practice in our life. And I hope this will help you grasp this, this gigantic book. All right. So Genesis means beginnings. That's probably the easiest place to start. That's the name. It's beginnings. It's the beginning of all things except God because God was always there. And we start to look at our origin. We start to look at why God created the world. Now, this book is very deliberate. It is, it is deliberate in that God or God gave these words to Moses in the tent of meeting. He's sitting there. Moses is in the tent of meeting. It's a tabernacle, like a big tent. And he's sitting there and God is giving him the words to write down. And everything is deliberate. The stories that are placed there can sometimes seem random. Why do we go suddenly from one narrative and then suddenly to a genealogy? Or from a genealogy straight to a different character that hasn't even been mentioned for like 10, 20 chapters. It is all deliberate and purposeful and makes us ask deeper questions about what's going on. Some questions that we should ask every time we open the book of Genesis is, what is God doing and what is God's purpose? What is God doing and what is God's purpose in this passage? Now, when you open a new book of the Bible, it's always helpful to know who the audience is. Who was the original audience? Who first read the book of Genesis? So when we looked at Ephesians uh, this past year, we know it's pretty easy. The audience is the Ephesians, the church that is in Ephesus. Genesis is a bit harder to know because it's not in the title. But what we do know is that Moses was in Egypt with the Israelites, led them out of Egypt into the wilderness. Moses was given on Mount Sinai the law of God and in so in doing created or built the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and there received the revelation of God for the book of Genesis. So the audience, the original audience, was the Exodus Israelites. The people of God, uh, they're on their journey to the promised land. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. The Israelites of this time have been in slavery for 400 years. So Genesis is finished with Joseph, and they've just gone into Egypt, and Israel is now dwelling in Egypt in prosperity and blessing. And Israel starts to grow and expand in a nation, and they get put into slavery because Pharaoh fears that they're going to conquer them. And for 400 years, they're in slavery. Do you know an ancestor from 400 years ago? Do you know who your great, I don't know how many greats that is. I'm not going to even try. 
So think about that for a moment. The Israelites are there. They're in Egypt or now in the, in, the, in the wilderness. They've been in slavery for 400 years. That means their grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents were in slavery and probably a few more greats on that. And they don't, they know of their God because story was the way they handed down uh, teaching and history, but they don't know him as deeply and intimately as they, as say Joseph would have, or Jacob or Isaac before him. So Moses is given this great revelation and saying, people of Israel, you who have been driven, who've been brought out of Egypt, know who I am, know who God is, know who you are, know what your purpose is, and know how God has been faithful. You may have waited 400 years, but God is still being faithful to the promise he made a thousand plus years before that to Abraham. So that is the original, the, the original audience, a people, a people who maybe are a little confused about their history, a people who are lost in sinfulness and grumbling, a people who have been oppressed and they're coming to a place of understanding about their origin. Who are we? Where did we come from? What is our purpose? And they're coming to a greater understanding of this faithful God who has just destroyed one of the superpowers of their time in Egypt. So what we find in this book of Genesis is first, of course, the creation story, which we will unpack next week. And then we go on to the promises of God. So this book is a story, a story of the children of Abraham. And what we need to remember is Israel began began from one man. And we descend as Christians from Abraham. So we need to understand a bit about Abraham. We'll, We'll unpack that a bit further. But Abraham was the beginning of God's people. So throughout a whole of Genesis, we see God's choosing, sovereign choosing. He's choosing of his people. And he starts with one man and he says, all the nations will be blessed through you. So the church comes through Abraham. Jesus comes through Abraham's line. Not because Abraham is a good fella, not because he's done good things, he's actually pretty insignificant, but God chose him. So when we look at this letter, or this book, we see that it's to the Exodus Israelites on their way to the promised land. We could rephrase that to be, it's to the children of Abraham, the people of God on their way to heaven. This is to us. We are no different to the Israelites. We are no different to the Israelites today apart from some traditions and cultures and technology, right? But we are on our way to receive the promises of God. We're on our way to receive the promises of God that he has kept for us in Christ and he's keeping us today. So as we read Genesis, Genesis, it is deeply relevant to our life today. We're in a similar place, a people in the wilderness, a people who are sojourning in a place that doesn't feel like home because home for us is heaven. Home for us is with God, a people waiting and longing for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Yet we have a greater assurance in Christ. One commentator said, no Christian who has ever studied the book of Genesis should ever say, I am looking for a sense of meaning and purpose in my life. No Christian. 
Because if you study the book of Genesis, you realize who you are and what you were designed for and what this whole world is about, God. So as we unpack Genesis, let me give you a little bit of a a brief structure, four points. Uh, Genesis is all about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the earth and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. So as we look at Genesis, the first thing we have to understand is it's all about God. And we will expand on that in a moment. Secondly, sin is the number one issue in the world. Number one issue, greatest problem is sin. Genesis 3 And that continues to be exposed in Genesis 4 to 11 when we look at the depth of the problem of sin in the whole world. As we see it run throughout genealogy, as we see it run throughout family after family, as we see how it corrupts uh, man's relationship with creation and man's relationship with one another. Sin is the greatest problem in the world and sin has run deep throughout the whole of the world. And then from 12 to 50, the largest chunk of Genesis is about God's faithfulness in his covenant of grace to his people. We start with Abraham, one insignificant man, and it grows from there down his family line. So we start in the world in 4 to 11, and we go tiny to the most insignificant one individual as God promises to that one individual that he will save a people for himself. And that promise is still for us today, that he will save a people for himself. So let's unpack that first one. The Bible or Genesis is about God. Genesis is about God. We must always remember that there is only one hero in the Bible. Particularly, we must always remember there is only one hero in Genesis to focus in on this book, and his name is Yahweh, or God. He is threefold Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And throughout Genesis, we see the focus on all three of them, but majoring in on the work of the Father. Now, if we were to look at the whole of Scripture, Genesis, and for much of the Old Testament, the focus is on the work of the Father. The Gospels, the focus is on the work of the Son. And now, in our period, from Acts to the throughout the letters, the focus is on the work of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, when one works, they all work. And it just depends on how they focus in on the person of the Trinity. So we're going to look at the hero, the father, throughout this story. But we're also going to have in our minds this great promise of the offspring. Genesis, by some commentators, has been called the, uh, the book of offsprings. Now, if you read it, there's a lot of genealogies, and it's always talking about the son of someone. So Genesis 3.15, this is where the, the, um, the saying, the book of offsprings, come from. Genesis 3.15 says, it's the curse that's coming along uh, against uh, the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the great first uh, prophecy of Jesus, that Satan's head will be crushed underneath his feet. 
Yet he will not be crushed without wounds, but he will be a wounded victor. So a better phrase is rather than the book of offsprings, it's the book of the offspring, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve. And throughout the whole of Genesis, we see this longing, this waiting, every genealogy, every birth, every barren woman waiting for the offspring. Will this be the one who crushes the serpent's head? Will he be the one who is wounded for our sins? Will he be the one who will set us free from the bondage of death and the curse on this world? So although it is about the work of the Father in the Godhead, we very much see the work of the Son as we wait longingly and expectantly. Every genealogy, every birth, every time there's a barren woman who has a miraculous birth, it points to Mary giving birth to Jesus. We see it, of course, in the descendants. We see him in Abraham. We see him in Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Jesus is the one we long for in the book of Genesis. So every time we see a birth, would we hold our breath, although we know the answer, and wait, is this the one? Or will we long or see and then, sorry, explore that person to see how that one foreshadows and points to Christ, how they are insufficient in themselves, but point to a greater need for a better offspring, a better Adam, a better saviour. A beautiful picture of the work of God in Genesis is this great longing for the offspring who will trample on the serpent's head. I love the phrase, the wounded victor. Satan will bruise him as we see of Christ who dies on the cross. He is wounded. He dies for our sins. He conquers sin through, our, through his wounds, through his death. But ultimately he wins. He wins in the death and he wins in his resurrection. So let us not forget that Jesus is very much a part of the book of Genesis, that we will see him over and over again as we wait longingly for the appointed Saviour. Chapters 4 to 11, we're looking at the world. We're looking at the brokenness of sin, sin spiralling out of control. So sin enters into the world, into God's perfect or God's good creation in Eden. And we see that sin then spirals everything out of control. So there's two things we must notice in Genesis 3 before we move on to look at 4 to 11. The first one is that as soon as they sinned, they were naked and ashamed. As soon as they sinned, sin has this effect where it makes us feel shame. And, and guilt. So there was uh, natural consequences of sin. But then God infuses a curse onto the world. And throughout 3 to 14, uh, chap sorry, chapters, chapter 3, verse 14 to 20, we see God putting a curse on the world, a curse on the serpent, a curse on the woman, and a curse on man. And ultimately, the curses could be summed up in a curse in the relationships between man and creation or man and relationships with one another, particularly the relationship between man and woman. So we've got the consequences of sin being we are naked and ashamed. We are exposed. We are naturally 
uh, it naturally goes against our grain of who we are. So things are going to go out of control. But then God deliberately curses this creation and curses the relationships we have with creation and one another in order that we may see that he is the only antidote. A, a great commentator said, God has in injected into human relationship a poison for which he alone is the antidote. So as we look throughout Genesis, as you unpack story after story, and what, what is amazing about these stories, and I said it, it is written with great, uh, it's written with a deliberate intent to leave us thinking and longing, is that some of them aren't condemned. In, Ju in Genesis 38, Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, commits this outrageous sin against his, his daughter-in-law, and it's not condemned. You don't actually see the, you don't see God say, I'm going to judge you for this. But it is condemned because the very next story is Joseph being righteous and saying no to Potiphar's wife in sexual sin. So you've got to actually understand that the stories correlate to one another. We can't just take out Genesis 38 on its own, try and understand that on its own because we need to know what comes before it and what comes after it. But what we are seeing is that Genesis 3.15, sorry, Genesis 3.14 to 20 covers the whole book. That what goes on from here is that throughout the whole world, verse four, chapters 4 to 11, is a brokenness, a deep curse, a deep, mis a deep poison that is running throughout man's relationship with creation and man's relationship with one another, particularly the relationship between men and women. If we look straight away in Genesis 4, we see Cain and Abel. Most of us would know that story. Abel gives a better offering than Cain. Cain gets jealous and kills his brother, right? Bitterness, a curse between them, a poison that is between them. And God even says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It is desire is to master you. He's warning him, saying there's a curse upon you. And the curse, the only antidote for that curse is to know God, to love God, to surrender to God. And of course, the Genesis 4 carries on and it's a few descendants of Cain and we get this guy called Lamech. And Lamech is the first man to have multiple wives and he collects women like they're some sort of possession to be abused and used. And he brags about his violence. He actually sings a song at the end of chapter 4, which says, I am uh, greater, uh, I do greater evil than Cain. So what we have now seen in Genesis 4 is that this curse has immediately ran into the children of uh, Adam and Eve, immediately ran into Cain and Abel, immediately ran, ran into Lamech a few generations down. This curse is, is, is pushing on through. And, it, and, it, and what, we, what it explains is that man is now defining what good and evil is for themselves. So in Genesis 1 and 2, God defined what good and evil was. In Genesis 3, Eve, when she took the fruit, decided that good and evil, she made a decision for what good and evil was for herself. And it was about herself, honouring herself, making sure she had what was a delight to her eye and Adam followed suit and Cain and Abel followed suit and Lamech, Lamech 
followed suit as well. They defined good and evil for themselves and they take the, they take the power from God, God the creator of all things, who is the rightful one who can define good and evil and they take it onto themselves and they say, I will define it. And it's always defined in a selfish way and we see this pattern all the way through to Noah. Now Noah, he was an all right dude. Maybe he was better than most. It says he was a righteous man, but that doesn't mean he wasn't without sin because we very much see sin in his life. But he was a little bit better than everyone else. And what made him a little bit better than everyone else is that he put his faith in God, not in himself. In Hebrews 11, we see this great list of all these, like you could say heroes of the Bible, but I don't like that word. All these people throughout the scriptures who weren't praised for their good works, but for their faith in God. And this is what we must see, that righteousness throughout the whole of Scripture is not about our good deeds, but about where we put our faith, where we put our trust. Who do we trust in? Ourselves to define good and evil or God to define good and evil? Because if our faith is in God who defines good and evil, then we will start to live for his glory and not our own. But if our faith is in ourselves, we will define good and evil as what best serves us. So, of course, you know the story, or maybe you do know the story, maybe you don't. Uh, The world ends up being terrible. This sin in Genesis 3 is just spiraling out of control. Everyone's defining good and evil for themselves. And God says, I'm going to wipe it out. I'm going to wipe it out. And he sends a flood and he saves one family. And I won't go into unpacking this story in depth, but what I want to point out, as soon as the flood goes down and Noah is on the land with his family, he builds a vineyard, he gets drunk, and his son comes in, sees him naked. We don't know what happens. But something happened where it was deep sin and the spiral continues again. Even when we wipe out the whole of humanity and preserve one righteous, This man, one man who puts his faith in God, it wasn't enough. The sin still remains. And we go on to the Tower of Babel in chapter chapter 11. And the people want to make a name for themselves. Once again, what are they defining as good and evil? What pleases me? What makes me great? So the people of of the whole world at this point, remember the world is pretty centralized at this point, want to make a name for themselves. So they build a tower to heaven and God says no. This is enough. I will scatter you. I'll scatter you. I'll confuse your languages. You will not be able to make a name for yourself. Of course, the correct response is, how can we make a name for the creator God? So Genesis 3 to 11. The summary is that we see the world out of control with themselves defining good and evil as the curse that God himself put on man between creation and man, woman and man, or man and man, whether it's just our relationships, as we see that just bring the world to pretty much utter destruction ends, the world would have been destroyed except God's presence is still here. Just think about that for a moment. If If God just sort of let humankind go their way. If we allow Genesis 4 to 11 just to, to play out and man builds their tower to God, thinks they're getting strong and, and man could all communicate, what evilness would have happened? How long until man wipes themselves out? Yet what we see in the book of Genesis is God is always present. 
and he is still present today. No ruler that gets in charge has ultimate control. Trump can't change this world. Biden can't change this world. I'm only saying that because they're on the news at the moment. I don't even know who our prime minister is. It's just we don't get that news. But that's what, they can't change this world. God is ultimately in control and he is the only antidote to the curse that sin has brought upon mankind. And of course, we see that in the promises he makes to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the rest of scripture, that God is the only antidote to the curse of sin. So Genesis 12 to 50, we start with this very significant three verses in chapter 12, 1 to 3, and it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, that's Abraham before he was Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and keep, and, uh, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the most probably significant passage in Genesis. It is significant because what we see is the whole world spiraling out of control and God turning his attention to one man. What we're going to see later on in life, or later on in scripture, is that God turns his attention to one man, Jesus. And this promise remains true. So he turns his attention to one man. Abraham is a man of great insignificance. He's a nobody. He comes from the line of Noah. Cool. It's not really that much to brag about. He has a bit of possessions, but then loses it all when he leaves his father's house and goes to sojourn uh, in a foreign land. And as he's in that foreign land, God blesses him and he starts to build up his resources. But there's one significant problem. Possessions mean nothing if you don't have descendants to take them over. In that, in that day and age, all his stuff would go to just a, a random relative and it would go off and who knows what would happen to it. So the only way these blessings would be significant is if he has a son who could take on his possessions and his name. And of course, we know the promise of Isaac, which takes decades to be fulfilled. If you read the book of Genesis, you may get confused that Abraham and God are just talking all the time, just in constant communication, sitting there, having a meal together, uh, which happens at one time. It's pretty weird. But it's not that consistent. If you look carefully, it may go chapter to chapter, but some of those chapters have a 10, 15, 20-year expanse from this promise in 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 uh chapter 12 to chapter 15 we're probably skipping 20 something years and then finally ishmael's born a a a uh, a false birth through a slave woman abraham trying to take into his own hands a descendant and of course it's another 12 years before isaac's actually born so what we need to remember is Abraham's not just communing with God day in and day out. He had this promise given to him. Then he waits 12 or 15 years. Then he waits another 10 years. Then he waits another 10 years before God meets with him again. 
It's quite a significant time. What was going through Abraham's head as he wandered throughout the wilderness, sojourned, sojourned in a land that wasn't his own, must have been hard. But I want to point out in verse 2, it says, I will bless you and make your name great. Just before in chapter 11, Babylon, the, the people in Babylon who built a tower wanted to make their name great, and God slammed it. But God's going to make Abraham's name great. The significance is that it's up to God who he promotes because God is going to bring glory ultimately to his own name. And in Abraham, we see that all the nations will be blessed in that he will be the, it will be his line in which Christ comes through and Christ is ultimately the wounded victor. So once again, we're drawn to the wounded victor. In verse 12, from chapter 3, when sin has entered in, it's spiraled out of control. We're drawn to the wounded victor in Abraham because he ultimately is the one who will save all the families, all the nations of the earth. What we need to remember is this book is primarily about God's sovereign choice. God Sovereign, totally in control, making the decision whom he will choose to be his people. Abraham, insignificant. Insignificant and sinful. Because what we see is that none of these men are good men, are righteous men. They are called righteous because they put their faith in God. That is the significant definition of a righteous person, to put their faith in God. Their deeds were not righteous. And the danger we have when we teach on these passages is we promote these people as images to follow or people not to follow. A great danger in kids' ministry, a great danger in the church from the pulpit is that we will grab Noah and we'll say, be like Noah, imitate Noah. Follow his characteristics. Or when he sins, don't be like Noah. And what that turns into is moralism. Do this and don't do that. But we use Jacob as a negative example and Isaac as a positive example. As we unpack these characters that we should be like or not be like. That is not the meaning of Genesis. These stories should not be taught like that. This story is about a people that is unfaithful and a God who is faithful. Abraham lies because he's fearful of man. At some point, a number of times, he does it twice. He goes into Egypt and he's there with Sarah. Apparently, Sarah's quite beautiful. And he's like, Sarah, say you're my sister so that they don't kill me and take you for their wife. So he goes in, says that Sarah's his sister. And of course, the king looks at her and goes, yeah, she's all right. I'll take her into my chambers. If it weren't for God intervening, Sarah would have fallen into adultery. So what we need to remember is that Abraham was a liar. Abraham was an adulterer when he went and slept with Haggai. Abraham is not one that we should be like, I want to be like Abraham. I want to have faith like Abraham. That is something we can have. But his good deeds, his righteous acts, Prove that God is the only one who is faithful and God is the only hero. Isaac, his son, does the very same sin his father did. Lies about Rebecca. She's my sister. And the same thing happens. 
And Jacob, well, he's a great deceiver and steals his brother's birthright. And of course, then we get through Jacob's sons, the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and we see great sinfulness among them, Judah in particular. Yet in the end, the promise is that Judah, the tribe of Judah, will have the Messiah come through. Genesis is a great reminder that it is not about works. It's not about good works, but it's about God's grace through his sovereign choosing. His sovereign choosing. God is the one whom chooses, who chooses. Genesis 15, 6 reminds us of this. It's quoted in uh, Romans 3. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The gospel begins in Genesis. The gospel of grace begins in Genesis. It was never about good deeds. It was never about moral standings. It was about faith in the faithful king, the faithful God, the faithful creator. The issue of Genesis is one of faith. Will you define sin or will you define good and evil for yourself? Or will you put your faith in the one who has already defined it? When we look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, what we are reminded of is that our good works are filthy rags before God. Our good works don't matter. God chooses whoever he likes. He chooses the rich and he chooses the poor. He chooses the powerful and he chooses the weak. He does not discriminate on works or nationality. He chooses whoever he pleases. If you turn with me to Romans 9, this will give us a good picture of this. So Abraham gave birth to... He didn't, his wife did, gave birth to Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, twins, Esau and Jacob. Now Esau was the older brother and by rights, the older brother got all the inheritance, not some of the inheritance, all of it. And we are brought to by Paul in Romans 9, this great picture of God's sovereign choosing. And he says in verse 10, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, being Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What we see here is Paul's teaching on Genesis. Paul's teaching on Genesis is that God ultimately decides who his people are. And it is not based on works or merit or status or power. It's based on his calling. Of course, this passage goes on. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's behalf? By no means. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. God defines good and evil. And God's definition of good and evil is that he is in control. That his name will be glorified. So as we unpack the book of Genesis, we are confronted heavily 
with insignificant, faithless people, with the curse of sin spiraling out of control, yet God's faithfully choosing, faithfully claiming, faithfully confirming his promises. We've got Abraham's story. You may want to jot these down, 12 to 25. And throughout it, he confirms the promise again in 15. We've got Jacob, Isaac and Jacob's story in 25 to 36. And we've got Jacob's son's story, mostly Joseph, in 37 to 50. And we see the same pattern. Sinful, disobedient, cursed men who continually fail, who continually abuse, abuse women, abuse their power. And God continues to be faithful in choosing them to bless them. Why? For his namesake, for his glory, that he may have what he intended in the beginning, that he may have a people for himself that dwell with him in a garden or in perfection or in a very good creation, as he says. Genesis 1 and 2 aren't plan A and then the rest of the Bible plan B. It was purpose from the beginning that the fall would take place and that God would choose a redeemed people for himself and claim them for himself. In Genesis 1 and 2, when the Spirit hovers over the expanse of the creation, we're looking to Revelation 22 in the new heavens and the new earth. It was the beginning plan that we would be redeemed, not through our works, not through our merit, not through our good deeds, but through him calling us. How does this all play out? How can we connect this? Well, let's finish in Genesis 50, 20. Last chapter of the Bible. Uh, last chapter of Genesis. The end of the book in 49 ends with Jacob blessing his son. This is where the tribe of Israel come. Uh, each son of his has a tribe named after him and they become a great nation and he blesses them. And he makes prophecies over them. And these things come true throughout. Of course, the greatest one we see is in Judah. Judah is promised that the Messiah will come from him. And in, the, in chapter 38, Judah is despicable in his sin, as I've said before. In, Ju- in Genesis 49, 8 30, 13, it says, the, shep- the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, tr- until tribute comes to him. So the kings will come from Judah. And Jesus, of course, came through the line of Judah. So we see this great promise, not through the work of Judah, not through his good deeds, but through God's sovereign choosing that his name may be glorified, that Jesus will descend from the tribe of Judah. And then what we see in Genesis 50, 20, this great line from Joseph. And Joseph, and he says, as for you, he's talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This passage is a great, sorry, this single verse is a great verse for us to comprehend one of the most complex questions in the whole of Scripture. How can God be sovereign and good and still hold man responsible for his actions? How does man's will and God's free will contend with one another? And this is our answer right here. What Joseph is talking about, if you don't know the story, is his brothers, when he was 17 years old, sold him into slavery. 
He had a horrific 10 to 15 years where he was a slave. He got promoted. He gets thrown in jail. He gets promoted in the jail. He finally gets out of jail and becomes the ruler, second in charge of Egypt, the greatest power of the time. And that's how we see Israel end up in Egypt. But Joseph has his brothers come to him because the whole of uh, his, his family come needing food in the time. And they're, they're fearful. They're afraid that Joseph, with all his power, is going to put them to death. And Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You wanted me to die. You desired evil in your heart. Your definition of good and evil was for your own sake. But God used that evil. He planned that evil for good. And that is what we need to grasp in our heads and in our hearts and meditate on it and study it is that God planned it and meant it for good. He doesn't just use our evil for good. He planned it. He purposed it. It was always planned that Joseph's brothers would sell him into slavery. Just like it was always planned that the fall would happen. These are hard things to grasp. These are These are challenges for us to wrestle with, but God always planned and ordained these things to happen for good, which is the very difference between us. When when God defines good and evil, he says, I am bringing about a people for my name's sake. That is what Christians are, a people for his name's sake, that we will dwell with him forever in a place like Eden, the better So everything that takes place in Genesis was planned and purposed in order that God's people would come about. The good is that there will be a people for God. We do things out of evil intentions. God does them out of good intentions. So when we come to the fact that God chooses his people, he is choosing them for good. Church, this is your story. This is your story. We are a people of God on earth today. We are the people of God on earth today. The Israelites were the people on earth back when they were alive. We are now the people of God on earth today. Your identity is a child of God in the covenant of God's grace. And we are together marching towards the promised land. The promised land where God will restore heaven and earth. And we will see his face and we will be his people and he will be our God as things ought to be. And we have a great purpose which has both cosmic and eternal implications. Do we believe that? Cosmic and eternal implications. As I said at the start from the commentator, No Christian who has ever studied the book of Genesis should say, I am looking for a sense of meaning and purpose in my life. We have one. From the very, very beginning, we were created with one. God sovereignly selects his people for his glory that we may dwell with him forever and make his name great. We're going to unpack that over the next year. We're going to explore these these stories in depth. We're going to see God's sovereign hand throughout as he keeps his people for himself. And we're going to look at that conflicting definition of good and evil 
in God, how he defines it, and in us, how we define it. What we always must keep in mind is that our definition is always wrong. Let's pray. Father, we have touched on weighty things and many things, and I don't expect or think that we would all have grasped them. And I know, Lord, I know that for many of us in our hearts, we struggle with the fact that you are allowed to choose. For many of us, we may say things like it's unfair. But Lord, as Paul said, who are we, O Lord, to talk back to you who created? You designed, you purposed, you fashioned this world. You chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you chose Israel. And in Christ, you chose us. Lord, as Jesus said, you did not cho- we did not choose you, but you chose us. Lord, if it was up to us, if we were to bow our knee to you, it would never happen because the curse of sin is running out of control. Lord, I thank you for your plan and purpose. I thank you for this great book of Genesis that it tells us who we are and what we were created for. Lord, would we live in our identity as your children, promoting your name and lifting it high? that those who are yours may hear of your great love and be called to you. Father, give us great wisdom as we explore this over the next, next few months, as we ponder our origin, as we think about your splendor and majesty, as we think about your great call and sovereign grace. Would it lead us to love you more and to serve you with great humility? We love you, Jesus, and we give you praise. Amen.